Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this is the Doctor Who Show. This is our episode for March of 2021. And I'm very excited, Rob, because for once I have won a listener poll, or at least my, my nominations won a listener poll. And this episode we are going to be talking about the Troughton last final season, season six. I'm very happy. Rob, how are you? Yes, Dave, very well. Hello, listeners. We did put out four picks for people to choose from, for our listeners to choose from. Two from you, two from me. And for once, you got up. I'm I'm dumbfounded at some of the results. We'll talk about them in more detail when we get to that section of the show. But I I am I'm dumb not I'm not dumbfounded that you won, Dave. That don't, don't let me you know say that. <laughs> I, I I am dumbfounded at one particular result, which we will talk about a bit later on. I was very surprised at how the results came out. Even though I was hoping that one of my nominations would win, I did not expect it to be this one. But again, we will talk about that. But Rob, we always kick off with any iTunes reviews we've had right at the top of the show, and we have had one. We certainly have. This is from Dwayne Bunny, a good friend of the show, who is also half of the uh, Sirens of Audio podcast, fantastic Big Finish uh, podcast. He has reviewed us on iTunes. Uh, five stars. Thank you very much, Dwayne. Uh, the title of the review is Disagreeing Politely. And Dwayne says, these guys have opinions and they're not afraid to share them. However, that being said, they demonstrate that in this day and age of you're either with me or you're my enemy, fellow fans can disagree and still be friends. Well, that's the vibe we're going for. So thank you very much, Dwayne, for um, for realising it and, and, and posting that. That's really, really, really cool. Yeah, fantastic. And if you out there have an iTunes review for us, please leave one and we'll read you out at the start of the show. We shall. Now, Rob. We've got a lot to talk about in the main part of the show, so let's crack on to the news, and you've got the first item. I do, I do, and this is actually Big Finish related, just talking about the sirens of audio. We're not a Big Finish podcast by any means, but I think this is important to note, uh, and that's basically that the the Big Finish main monthly Doctor Who range, it began back in July of 1999, if you can believe that, and it's just wrapping up now with a story called The End of the Beginning, which is another multi-doc thing with Dave and Turlo and Colin and, and Constance and McGann and Charlie and Sly McCoy and I think I just mixed up real life names and character names but <laughs> you know what I'm talking about they are going to do more stories of these Doctors in the future and in, in 2022 the whole thing will be rejigged but this is about the 275th release, monthly release and I think that's just really notable. That's that's quite amazing stuff, you know. Uh, and I just wanted to note that it's it's out there. You can go and listen to it. Uh, apparently, it's a good story. And what a what a run between July of nineteen ninety nine and now. It's it's longer than the current series. It's very easy to make fun of Big Finish, and look, we do. And our friends at Forty Two to Doomsday certainly do. But. <laughs> And, you know, they, they do sometimes go off into sort of slightly bizarre areas and, and they, they have so much content that I, I think is such a credit to them for being able to be so prodigious and deliver so much content that so many people love. Uh, it is a blessing and a curse because, as I've said before, I just look at those releases now and just go, even if I wanted to get into this, like, where do you start? Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost inaccessible now for a, for a new fan. But no, look, they have spent 20-something years now making something that a lot of people love. And yeah, credit to them. Absolutely. I would, I would never have thought about this when I saw the first one released in 1999. Oh, no way in the world. And and look, there is something for everyone. I mean, I look at this release and I think, oh, I'll get to that one day. That's something I will listen to. Meanwhile, I see something like, you know, The Diary of River Song, which is up to its, 
whatever season. And I'm like, I will never listen to that in my life. I'm quietly confident of that. Absolutely. There are releases that I see, usually the more special things like the novel adaptions or the lost stories or something with a bit of a, a, a particular hook. Mm. And, and I'll sit there and go, hey, that's really cool. The next time I'm doing a bit of long distance driving or road tripping, I'll, I'll buy a few big finishes that I've got my own and I'll I'll put them through. But um, yeah, well done to them. Yeah. Shall we move on? Speaking of Doctor Who merchandise, long-running Doctor Who merchandise, yes. Doctor Who magazine we've discussed before is surviving, but like a lot of periodicals and journals and magazines, it is struggling in the modern world full stop, and certainly under COVID has struggled even further. They announced a couple of weeks ago that they are going to once again drop the comic strip from the magazine. It is on hold indefinitely with an intention to bring it back, but as I understand it, no fixed date, and it will probably depend on the finances. But editors have said before, and I've never really appreciated it, that the comic strip is just such a massive part mm. of the DWM budget. So if you need to make you know, a real substantive saving, that is a very easy, if, if hard way to do it. And look, when I was a teenager, the comics were a big part of my love of DWM. Um, when I came back to the show as an adult and I started buying DWM a bit in the RTD era, I, I wasn't nearly as into the comic as, as others were. It was sort of a, an extra, so... I don't mind, but a lot of people love it, and it just shows how different forms of merchandise are having to adapt to modern market realities. Oh, yeah, look, and before I say this, I know there is an electronic version of Doctor Who magazine out there, but I think most people still like it in print. The last time I saw a Cirque number, though, it was around the 20,000 mark. This was, might have been a couple of years ago, which is not a huge circulation. You know, it's it's not disastrous either. It's it's just it just kind of is. Uh, I can see why they're doing this though, because the magazine does come out every four weeks, and that's a hell of a turnaround for a comic. You know, to be drawn and written and coloured and all that stuff. So I can see why they're doing this. But to me, yeah, it, it's been such a big part of Doctor Who magazine for such a long period of time. It seems really bizarre to have Doctor Who magazine without the comic. Yeah. So look, hopefully this is the interim measure they have to do to get them through a tougher patch and then they can kind of restore it to what they want they've done very well going into the digital space i think they, they, they were really sort of market leaders in terms of the app and the digital marketing so look i hope they continue but that is just a way that things are affecting doctor who merchandise Mm. Uh, moving on, BBC One's Comic Relief has put out a, uh, a sketch which took the form of a teaser trailer for a, for a fake film. This film does not exist. It's called 2020 The Movie. And they, they made this trailer. It was basically a way for actors and celebrity types to just film little segments. I guess this is particularly good with COVID. And then they can be stitched together like it's part of one movie. And notably, uh, Doctor Who alum Kari Mulligan is in one of the early scenes. Uh, later on in the trailer, though, uh, Jodie Whittaker and Mandeep Gill. Apparently, they're on the set of Casualty. I, I don't know, because I've never seen Casualty in my life. I'm not even sure if Casualty airs in Australia, to be honest, Dave. I've never known it to, except maybe on you know one of the very niche pay, pay t- channels, you know, like a BBC yeah, channel which or is, something. Which is so weird, because we get just about everything British, but Casualty is not one of them. And basically, they're in the casualty set and they stop and Mandeep's like, oh, do you hear that? It sounds like clapping. And Jody's like, it's 8pm, it's Thursday, you know what that's for. And of course, the correct answer is that people are clapping for health professionals. But Mandeep, you know, quips that, oh, they're clapping because the Great British Bake Off has just started. 
and you know jody then waves her sonic mandate pushes it down and and they just jog on they they literally just leave the the scene it's not that great nor particularly funny uh so i assume chris chibnall wrote it uh dave (laughs) did you see it (laughs) I saw it mentioned, um, and it's one of those things where you sort of get up in the morning, you check your, check your social media, look at your Twitter feed, see if any news is broken, and a few people sort of mentioned this, I thought, oh, that's, that's vaguely curious. When I get a moment later in the day at lunchtime or maybe after work, I'll I'll have a look at it, and it completely vanished from my social media feed. Like, it, it came, and then it went, and yeah. vanished from my mind as well. It didn't make much of a splash in the way these things normally do. Yeah, there's just not that much to it as a whole, and with regard to the Doctor Who centric bit as well, it's there's there's just not much there. Fair enough. Mm. <laughs> um, a final piece of uh, just sort of fun news, and this comes from uh, ScreenRant.com. As we have often discussed, the new set of Target novels came out in the last few weeks, mm-hmm. and the one that's really made the splash that everyone's talking about is Robert Shearman's adaption of Dalek, which I'm very keen to read when I get a copy. They haven't been released in Australia yet, or if they have, mine certainly hasn't been posted. Um, but apparently he has worked what could be considered to be Donald Trump references into the story. And, of course, anything where Doctor Who touches on politics just sets clickbait articles alive. Yes. And that's happened here. And so, you know, sort of a comment about, you know, well, he owns the internet so he can decide who's elected president and da da is sort of being seen by people either deliberately or not as a link to um, the various sort of Comey-type stuff that happened during the 2016 election. Um, and, you know, it's now all about Doctor Who's being political and Doctor Who's fighting against Trump and people love it, people hate it, people see it, people don't. It's just um, another one of those wonderful, silly season articles. <laughs> well, I, I, how do you feel about this? I'll go first if you like. I, I actually don't like this sort of stuff. I feel it dates awfully and just in a few more years' time, it'll just feel cheesy and, like, it doesn't need to be there and the novel would probably have been better as just a telling of the TV story. Am I just being too conservative there? I think that it's been done in such a way that if you know, you see it, and if you don't, it's just a passing general reference. Kind of like where the Brigadier is put in touch with the Prime Minister in The Green Death and, and, the, and the guy hanging on the phone says, it's for you, Jeremy. And if you're in the know, you go, oh, that's a reference to Jeremy Thorpe. And if you don't, you're just like, well, the Prime Minister must be called Jeremy today. Right. You know, so if, if it is just, you know, this this happened and it's generic president, then it'll give some people a laugh, it'll make some people cringe. But I suspect in 10, 20 years' time, most people who are reading this will just go, yeah, okay, whatever. Well, I think that just about wraps up news. It does. We're, we're once again, just sort of waiting for, you know, big news from the new series there are rumors starting to circulate from the new series a couple of which came across my social media feed but they're not news they're just rumors and we will hopefully get some sound announcements soon Mm, i also saw some uh some filming they were doing in liverpool some fans are out filming that it looked like it was the introduction of john bishop perhaps uh to the to the team i thought that's interesting because i've been filming with him for a while are they only just filming his intro now makes sense though if they're in liverpool and he's a liverpudlian character i guess that they may be picking him up in liverpool and I also heard somebody say that something else was being filmed there that he was in as well, so it might not have been who. So uh, I haven't really researched that properly. Ah, interesting. Shall we move on to mini topics? We shall. So, Rob, the first mini topic is mine, and okay. I'm going to get on a little bit of a, uh, not a high horse, but a medium-sized horse. So a, a, a pony? <laughs> yes. A small horse, large pony, something like a donkey, maybe. Okay. I'm going to ride on a donkey. That's not prophetic at all. Um <laughs> Look, 
a, a couple of threads that I'm going to pull together here. And the first is, I've mentioned many times, I'm a big fan of Kevin Smith's work as, as a director, as a writer, and also as a podcaster. And I listen to his Fat Man Beyond podcast pretty regularly. And he was doing one where he and his co-host were talking about uh, WandaVision, and I was listening. And at one point, Kevin Smith said to, um, to Mark, and, and I've written it down as close to word to word as I can remember it. A couple of years ago, I nearly died, so I know firsthand death is coming. But I know when it does come, the thing I won't be saying is, gee, I regret I didn't criticise more things and tear more TV shows and movies apart while I was alive instead of just enjoying them. Mm. And, and that you know really sort of hit home for me as a really positive attitude. But at the same time, I've noticed a real prevalence in my Twitter feed amongst Doctor Who fans in this last two to three weeks really bemoaning the toxicity of Doctor Who fandom online and Doctor Who people tweeting. And I have never found that and never noticed it because I'm very selective about who I follow and who I don't follow. Mm. And I just think that Kevin Smith's attitude is absolutely the right one. You can you can criticise, you can have a bit of fun, you can do reviews, sometimes you give bad reviews, but there's a difference between doing that and just going, right, I'm going to sink the booty in a bit further because that's the way I want to spend my life. And there's a difference between fighting with people who are just being negative for the sake of it, who are being toxic, who, who don't want to actually debate or, or explore. They just want to argue. And look, I've had some great exchanges with people over Twitter where we disagree and sort of explain to each other why we disagree and say, oh, that's really cool. That's a different point of view. That's really fun. Or mm. sometimes you just go, oh, look, um, yeah, I don't see it the way, do, way you do. Um, fair enough. I'm going to move on in my life and go cook dinner. Yeah. And so, look, if you're finding Doctor Who fandom to be a negative space... My very strong, and I'm saying this for riding on my donkey, is <laughs> you're in the wrong part of the Doctor Who fandom. You're in the wrong space. Most yeah. of Doctor Who fandom, all the bits I interact with, are wonderful, great podcasts, great people on Twitter, great people on social media, great friends. If you're not finding that, stop following the people that are causing you harm, causing you pain, and find better people, and block people, do whatever you do, mute certain words. Doctor Who fandom should not be toxic. No, no, it shouldn't be. And I, I didn't know you were taking this tack uh, specifically. I mean, in our show notes, you just mentioned that you were going to talk social media. It's interesting that in the last week, I, I had a bit of a tear on our uh, Twitter with regard to the uh, Zack Snyder version of uh, Justice League. Because now that it's been such a success, people are saying there's a hashtag out there, Restore the Snyderverse. And of course, there are these people out there who just hate Zack Snyder and all that he does and nothing will change their minds. And people were, were jumping all over this hashtag, the Restore the Snyderverse. And so I tweeted, Restore the Snyderverse? Why not? Um, I grew sick of people hating on Zack and who don't want to watch his films anyway, saying that the Snyder Cut didn't exist and then it wouldn't come out. Then it comes out, and for the fans it's been fabulous. So is making people happy a crime? You know, in Doctor Who terms, it's like people who aren't into the Whitaker era. Some of them give their thoughts as to why, but accept that other people like it and it gives them pleasure and fine. But others feel this need to destroy the series and they're like the Snyder haters. They can't let it go. And I see these people in social media and and I do try to, to block them or at least mute them because I think, what what good can come of this? Like, it's fine to have an opinion. Again, you might not think the Whitaker era is great, but you realise that other, someone else loves it. That's absolutely fine. But the ones who just want to hate and destroy and, and just every time they see the word Chris Chibnall or Whitaker, they go literally crazy. 
uh, just get him out of your life. Life is too short. Kevin Smith is absolutely right. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think that if you are rooting for something to fail, then you're probably not in a good space yourself and you're probably not coming with good intent. You can dislike somebody. You can sit there and be in a minority of 1% who dislike something that's incredibly popular. I can think of many TV shows that have been on in Australia in the last few years that have been big rating TV shows and I thought are absolutely terrible. Mm. Um, you know, in my friendship circles, 80% of my friends are, are obsessed by variations of Drag Race. I cannot think of anything more tedious or horrible to watch. So when they talk about that, I just shut up and let them. I'm not rooting for it to fail. No, that would be pointless. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, look, I, I, I kind of just saw all this and I just thought Kevin's comment was really good. And for those who don't know, Kevin had a massive heart attack about two years ago and um, came very close to dying and, and has really you know, changed his life around. He's, he's dropped half his body weight. He's a lot healthier, a lot fitter and... Um, doing a lot of different things with his life, which is very positive, and he's had that epiphany, and I just thought, yeah, no one lies on the deathbed and says, Chief, only I'd really, you know, explained a little bit more why I hate the Chibnall era. That, that's how I would, that's the thing I regret in my life. Yeah, I, I think a more constructive use of their time is to is to like things they actually enjoy, you know. Yeah, go, if, if you're not enjoying Doctor Who, that's fine, go find another show to like, go Grow roses. Go for a walk. I don't know. Do something. Or, or just sit it out till the next era comes along. Don't wish that it goes away or blows up. You know, <laughs> you know. Just, just wait for the next doctor to come along. You might like them instead. Absolutely. So, look, that's that's my rant. We don't, we don't usually try to pontificate on this this show, Rob. But um, I really got worked up about that one, so I did. But uh, you've got a few things that are also kind of social media related. Yeah, this is social media related. I I recently tweeted because people were talking about Dodo Chaplet. And I made the comment that Dodo is one of those characters who I reckon cops flack, <laughs> talking things copping flack, from people <laughs> from people who've never probably even seen her stories. You know, it, it's one of those received fan wisdom things that this podcast tries never to, to sort of take on board because received fan wisdom is just terrible. You know, they don't they don't want to look out of touch. They the, these these fans want to look like, oh yeah, Dodo, she's terrible. You know, but I don't think she's anywhere near as bad as she's made out to be. And I got some interesting replies. Dylan Rees from uh, Doctor Who Too Hot for TV, one of my favourite podcasts, said uh, I'd take Dodo over Victoria any day. Time Lady Phoebe, that's uh, Phoebe K. Gardner on Twitter, said, I think if she had more time or most of her stories weren't missing, I feel like this wouldn't necessarily be the case. Good on Big Finish for uh, being on the job. Uh, Doctor Who Novels, who we, we both love, Dave. We're always <laughs> commenting we are, we are. on the, the, the novels there. Uh, he says, I love, love, love Dodo and Jackie Lane. She is so good in The Gunfighters. The character is scripted to do idiotic things like lose games in The Toy Maker, or almost wipe out humanity in The Ark. But in Tombstone and The Savages, she's fiery, assertive, and wonderful. And finally, The Sirens of Audio. I think this might have been Philip Edney, not our mate Dwayne Bunny, but uh, whichever of the chaps it was says, I have never understood why the hate of Dodo... She She's great in all her stories. The Ark and the Gunfighters both give her great action. And even when Wotan takes her over, she's well played. The production team may have treated her shamefully, but we shouldn't. So there you go, Dave. Uh, Dodo Chaplet, good thoughts out there. Yeah, that's all very positive. And yeah, a great example that, uh, you know, sometimes perceived fan wisdom actually isn't that representative. Um, no. But also another example that sometimes when somebody says, hey, what do you think of Dodo Chaplet? There is a valid answer, which is, you know... I don't know. I actually haven't seen anything of her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't have to go, well, I've, I've seen nothing of her, but I'm told she's terrible, so I'll go with that to be part of the cool kids. Yeah, exactly my point. No, good to see some Dodo love. Um, I, I don't really have a strong opinion. I think she's 
got some good stories. She's got some okay stories. She's she's not as memorable as some of the companions around her. I think it's probably the the knock on it. She's not Jamie. She's not Stephen. She's not hmm. Ian and Barbara. She's not Zoe. So she probably probably you know gets sort of you know, forgotten a bit. Yeah, but the hate. I don't get the hate. No, 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 me either. No. Uh, moving from hate to effusive praise. Yes. Um, because I mentioned last episode that I started a season 18 rewatch and I finished that during the course of the last month. I'm not going to go into every story because we've already got one season to talk about this episode. Um, but look, I really did enjoy it. I just loved putting on season 18 stories one after the other. Just an episode here, a couple of episodes there. You know, when I could get to them, when I could fill in some time, mm. I just felt as though they were getting better and better and better. I enjoyed Megalos, and then you know, along comes Full Circle, and that's even better. And then State of Decay comes along, and that's even better. And <laughs> Warriors Gate's pretty good. And then Keeper of Traken's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, it's just it's just so good. But I really just noticed, you know, how good Tommy's in these, how good the companions are in these, um, just how well they're using the production. I mean, Megalos is probably the weakest looking one, and that's not too bad, but. The location filming. There's no quarries here. It's no. it's lush jungles and forests and and outdoors and and all the rest of it. Um, I was struck how many of them in episode one, and I suspect this is Bidmead's work. They just pack so much world building in. We're going to introduce these characters and this idea and this contrivance and this setting and this and this and this. And by the end of it, you're just going, wow, there is so much in this. Full Circle is a great example. Um, and the other thing that a lot of the good ones do, um, Legopolis. Full Circle, State of Decay particularly, um, is they put all of the explanation and the Doctor discovering, ah, this is what's going on on this planet, into Episode 3. Mm. And then Episode 4 is just free to just be the big adventure that wraps this all up, rather than sort of stopping to go, so let me explain what was going on here today. <laughs> and also that was, again, really, really good structurally. Uh, and Warrior's Gate doesn't do it, and I think that that is a shame. Yeah, look, I see a lot of parallels between Tom and Stephen Moffat because I think Tom did stay on too long. I think that's a pretty safe argument for people to make. Yet, if he had left earlier, we would never have had this series. And in a similar way, I think Moffat stayed on too long. Yet, had he left earlier, we wouldn't have had uh, Series 10, which was arguably Capaldi's best. So it's one of those uh, seasons that I really love the fact it exists because... It might not have in another universe, another parallel universe. Do you know what I mean? No, I absolutely do. I, I think that you're absolutely right. Tom did stay on too long, but the result was we got this season of sort of Tom on the way out, a, a more somber Tom, and I'm, I'm very glad we have it. I've said before, I wouldn't want all of Doctor Who to be like season 18, but I'm so glad that this season is. Uh, and the final thing I'll just say is that I did send out a tweet while I was watching The Keeper of Truck and just reiterating a view that I've said publicly many times about how good I think Adric is with the fourth Doctor mm. and it is one of the most successful tweets I have ever sent out it was loved and retweeted and commented on by dozens and dozens and dozens of people and it just made me so happy to see some Adric love out there rather than Adric hate absolutely fantastic speaking of Adric um, I'm watching the Davison Years DVD from real time and because they didn't get Davo uh, interviewed for the Myth Makers series back in the day, they actually stick in a panel from Panopticon 7 with Davo, you know, front and centre, and, and all of his companions. But a modern-day Matthew Waterhouse kind of provides linkage 
uh, video in between questions and where a question is inaudible, he's actually on screen saying what the question is. And it's really, really watchable. It's not just like watching some crappy old VHS of a panel from, you know, 1986. It's it's a really engaging thing. Matthew Wardhouse is, is, is quite charming, actually. Oh, he is. He's very charming and engaging, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. Anyway, that went off on a tangent. Uh, my final uh, short topic is... I want to say March was my call for an official yes, Jody's leaving message to go out. You know, the rumour went out in January. I think it's still a pretty good rumour. Uh, and I said, you know, by March, there'll probably be an official message. Uh, and here we are recording this, what, four days left of the month and nothing's happened. Anything, I guess, is possible in the next four days. But it looks like the BBC is continuing to hold its fire. Does that mean it's not happening? I still don't think so. I, I think it just means the BBC is being stubborn and is doing this on what they perceive to be their own terms. Because I really can't see Jody doing a fourth series when Tennant didn't. I mean, he made some specials, sure, but he didn't do a fourth series. Smithy didn't. Capaldi didn't. I just can't see the 13th Doctor kicking on to a fourth series. I think it's going to happen still, but still no announcement. I think if there is an announcement, I'm still probably less certain than you are on this, Rob. Mm-hmm. They're going to use it to basically bounce the publicity for the new series. Interesting. So I, I, I think that, you know, not that, you know, we're not sort of, you know, in the show circling in the drain territory or anything like that. We're not, no, we're not, we're not, not at that. all. But, but the, the show, you know, because it is a longer running show in a larger media market, it is harder to get attention and to get publicity and to get viewers. That, that is a fact of 2021. Mm. Um, so I think that just sort of having a big, hey, Jody's going, we're starting the quest for the new Doctor and dropping it in March and then sort of letting it sink and having nothing to follow it up with would be foolish. What they will do, in my view, if, if it is happening, is they'll sort of carefully drop Jody's going and we're starting the hunt for the new Doctor. Then they'll do a big, this is the new Doctor and there'll be a big hook and a big, you know, this is why you get excited. And, you know, if you want to know more about this, well, the next season is starting in two weeks, ladies and gentlemen, let's go. Mm. And it'll be sort of used as that hook to get you into the new series that, that that's how i would do it if i was them we will see yeah look it's still up for grabs it still might not happen you know i'll be i'll be astounded if that's the case but who knows who knows mm. main topic now rob yes so at the end of our last episode we each nominated two seasons for us to go into a deep dive on because our, our, our season deep dives are quite popular episodes we get really good feedback about them and we like to do Mm. them ourselves so I nominated season 6 and season 11 you nominated season 14 and the Tenant Specials Mm. now the winner by a pretty strong vote in a four way race was season 6 with 37.9% the runner up was my other choice which I thought was my more likely to win choice (laughs) which was season 11 Pertwee's last season with 27.9% uh, next came the Tenant Specials on 19.3. I thought that, you know, because it was the only New Who option in there and we don't do as much New Who as some people would like, I thought that would unite all the New Who fans mm. and get get more, but uh, it didn't. And Season 14, a Tom Baker classic Hinchcliffe season, 15% distant in fourth place. That really surprised me, but I suspect, and I think you've got thoughts as well, Rob, mm-hmm. I suspect that the listeners... Uh, listen to our plea not to go with the one you love the most, but go with the one you think will be the most interesting to talk about. And I do know that sometimes Tom, particularly Hinchcliffe Tom, 
is tough to discuss. You know, where do you go? Um, so the first story in that season, yeah, that's as good as everyone says. Second one, yeah, that's good too. Third one, yeah, I love that one. <laughs> you know, t- t- Tom's awesome. Liz Sladen's awesome. Okay. <laughs> it's not always the most entertaining discussion. That's my theory, Rob. What's yours? My theory is that Twitter is full of uh, sadists and they <laughs> realise that there's the most episodes in the Troughton uh, season plus basically a missing story aside from one episode and so they'll make those bastards over at the Doctor Who show do the hard yards. I think that's what it was, Dave. Yes, it, it was a lot. I, I won't say I've watched every single episode. A couple of stories I've watched in the last year, so I uh, I was able to. But no, I I was up in Canberra for um, the parliamentary sitting last week, and there was me, you know, in, in the cab out to the airport and on the airport in my mask, listening to the Space Pirates. And I'll be going home from Parliament House at ten, eleven o'clock at night, and getting into my hotel room and putting on a couple of episodes of the Crotons, and yes. try, trying to get through it as much as I could. And one quick thing to add, Dave, too, when we say, like, you know, 37.9% for season six, that's not based on, like, you know, there were six votes for it or something. We actually had 140 votes overall. So this was a pretty definitive poll, uh, which I was really happy to see. Yeah, so that's that's 14 votes ahead of the the, the next one, which was Pertwee. So, mm. yeah, no, very cool. Um, so, look, let's start off, I think, with just a couple of kind of thoughts on, on background in the season and... The one thing I wanted to say right at the offset is, for those of us who've been in fandom for many decades now, (laughs) as you and I have, and I know a number of our listeners have, for a long time, season six was the Troughton era. Yes. For us in Australia, we randomly got repeats of the Crotons and the Mind Robber in 1986, which was just like, wow, there's black and white Doctor Who on a repeat season. That's awesome. But, you know, the first... Uh, Trouton out on VHS was the Seeds of Death. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Crotons wasn't far after. The Dominators wasn't far after. The War Games wasn't far after. In fact, basically all... Well, no, not basically. All of the complete Trouton stories were in Season 6 until Tomb of the Cyborg was found and then Enemy of the World was found. And they're still the only two complete stories outside this season for Trouton. Yes. So any time that there was a Five Faces of Doctor Who repeat season, it was always the Crotons because it was the only existing Trouton with four parts. So all of these stories got a much bigger airing. And I think there was a familiarity with this season where it was like, this is Trouton, which defined part of how we saw it. But because so much of season five and the the latter half of season four was missing power of the daleks evil of the daleks tomb of the cybermen web of fear fury from the deep it was like wow season six kind of looked like this poor cousin Mm. next to this mythic monster era that we couldn't see anything of Mm. um but that's changed now we can see a lot more of those eras they're all out and what exists is out and perceptions have changed but this this was troughton for a long time Absolutely, and I, I think you must have been looking at my notes because <laughs> what you were saying there is, is everything I've got written in front of me. This just feels like a very familiar season and familiar crew to me, largely because of my age and my time in fandom. Yeah, exactly. Whereas someone coming up, you know, they, they got into New Who five years ago and now they're looking at Classic, they would see and hear a lot of Pat, you know, audios, reconstructions, you know, the animated stuff. And it just isn't the same as as what we went through. Like you say, this this was Pat. This was all we watched. You know, especially Croton, Seeds of Death, Mind Robber. I've noted that down myself. Yeah, absolutely. They, they were the three Trout and Sock shows that I saw and had on home video for a very long time. The other point perhaps to make, and certainly that I wanted to make, is 
it is extraordinary how they delivered this season, which I'll say right at the top, I think is pretty good. Mm-hmm. It is extraordinary how they delivered this season with so much trouble going on in the background. You had the handover from Innes Lloyd to Peter Bryant, and then later on in the season, Peter Bryant hands over to Derek Sherwin as producer. Derek Sherwin comes in as script editor, and then suddenly he's being the deputy producer, and then he's the producer, and Terrence Dix is there as kind of like the deputy assistant script editor, and next thing you know, he's rewriting whole stories, and then he's the script editor, and you've got the prison in space falling down, and oh, thank God for that. Um, <laughs> Although, I, I've got to say, Fraser Hines jokes on one of the extras I watched that he would have quite liked prison in space, because he's saying, you know, it's a planet run by women, and they're wearing these shorts and these little, you know, leather hats, and oh, it'd be fabulous. <laughs> oh, uh, having, having spent time drunk in a pub with Fraser Hines, I have no doubt he would have adored prison in space. <laughs> That is not a good thing, Fraser. That is not a good thing. Um, Fraser, bad. No, stop it. Um, um, but, you know, it, it was so problematic. I remember when Terrence Dix came out. We, I saw him at a convention a number of years ago now. And he talked about this era and just... He'd come from um, doing a lot of soap operas where you, know, you had to churn out regular episodes, you know, on and on and on. It was a real work ethic. And then he got to Doctor Who, where particular under under a particular member of the... Uh, the production office. It was an attitude if you came in, you did a bit of work, you went to lunch at the pub, you got pissed, you went home. Yeah. And, and that was kind of... And he's going, this is this is unacceptable. This is not TV. I'm a, I'm a young man wanting to forge a career and make a name for myself. And I'm not going to be, you know, held back by the old has-been producer who wants to get pissed every day. Mm. Um, so you've got all that dynamic going on and we're going to explore that as we go through the season. But it was a mess. Like, the fact that they got this season out is just a mess. And... The fact that it ends with a 10-part story that they're just like, just write another part, another one. We're, we're filming tomorrow. Can you write me another one? Like, it's a big deal. It is. It is. The other quick thing I want to say, just to give a bit of context, is I did double-check, and the moon landing was four weeks after the end of this season. So that whole lead-up to the moon landing was very much a part of the zeitgeist when this season was being made and going out. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the stories themselves, let's talk the TARDIS team, because, Dave, I think this is Pat's best team. I adore Polly, uh, for example, but I think the the Ben, Polly, Jamie crew doesn't work so well. You know, you've got two youngish guys sort of competing for lines and things to do. The Jamie-Victoria crew, I think, is let down by Victoria, sadly. So although it makes it sound like this crew wins almost by default, I think it actually works well regardless of what else it was up against in the in the Troughton era. You know, you got Jamie, sort of the dumb brawn. you got Zoe, the super smart girl genius. You're covering all the bases. You know, uh, putting aside the fact that Wendy Padbury's very good as Zoe, I, I think this is his best team. Do you? I, I do, and I say that as somebody who is very fond of Victoria and isn't as down on her as a lot of fans are these days. I, I, I like all the Troughton teams. But, yeah, it works very well here. Troughton is clearly comfortable in the role. He's got a really good rapport with Fraser Hines, and those two you know, were, were best friends, and they would buy the same car, and they would give each other's lift to work. And, you know, Fraser would talk about how he would drive Troughton home after a week on payday and... You know, watch him drop all his animal money at various different addresses on the way home and then, then go to the pub. You know, that, that, it was that sort of a, like a close relationship and then Wendy's clearly got in and just, just, just got on there. But, but Zoe works so well because a, a lot of people who watch Doctor Who and are Doctor Who fans are somewhere more towards the nerdy end of the spectrum. Hmm. Um, they, they, they are the people that are interested in science or history and they want to put up their hand and they want to read target novels you know they're that they're that sort of kid in large part i'm generalizing of course and so having a character who is also smart and intelligent but fun 
and wants to explore the, the the universe with the Doctor is a perfect combination. And Zoe is that. You know, she she's a role model. She's smart. She's inquisitive. That's good. But she desperately wants to explore the universe and just get out there and, and have a look around. I love Victoria. She's very good. But Victoria was a much more timid character. And there's this sort of, oh, let's go back to the TARDIS. It's going to be mm. dangerous here. And I never liked that in Companions. I like the, Doctor, we've arrived. I want to go out and explore. Who cares about checking? Let's just go and explore. I'm going to go over that hill. Now I'm going to... And that's what Zoe is, and that's fantastic. Yeah, and, and also, when you've got Jamie and Victoria together, two characters from the past, I don't think is a good idea. I think one from the past, one from the future is great. Yeah, I agree. That that balance actually does work very well as well. And look, Wendy Padbury is a very good actress as well. That, that mm. needs to be said. Yes, absolutely. Shall we get into the stories? We shall get into the stories. So, the Dominators. Uh, shall I go first, or shall you, Rob? Oh, look, Dave, I reckon you've got a lot to say about this one. This is one of the ones that I have highlighted that I want to say a little bit more about. So I will, I will say I have not watched The Dominators in 15 years. Um, yeah. And I know to know where I was the last time I watched it. So it's 15 years. And I've been very dismissive of The Dominators. And it's not a strong opening to the season, let me say that. Mm. But watching it again, it was better than I expected. And I took a number of positivities away from it. I thought there were some very cool classic 60s attempts at being alien. The spaceship looks a bit different. The Dominator's costumes are, are different and weird and kind of work. The Dulcian costumes are different and weird and don't work. <laughs> the, the quarks are different and weird and, and work in some instances. They don't work in others. The travel capsule doesn't work. Like there's, there's, but, but you can see the attempts to be a bit different and a bit alien. The Dominator's have a culture, you know, they, they have a background and you get a hierarchy between them and they talk to fleet leader and, and all the rest of it. The Dolcians have a history. That, that, that I think, works. And the location filming is actually quite good. So I, I found stuff in here to like and appreciate. However, a lot of the background plot just doesn't work. No. The, the characters are dull. Some of them are very badly acted. I think the guy who plays Cully, who went on to be the driver in Yes Minister, just as an aside, um, <laughs> the guy who plays Cully is a perfectly good actor, but he's clearly meant to be playing somebody who's about 19, and he looks like a middle-aged, balding 40-year-old. Yes. Which, which is just absurd. And, and look, I get kind of what the production team is trying to do. We're in the middle of the Vietnam War we're in the middle of all the stuff that's going on we had the moratoriums here in Australia and obviously really big social unrest over in America over Vietnam that the Britain wasn't as associated with and they're kind of going for like what Ian does in the Daleks that that that, that wonderful little monologue that Ian has with the Thales about you know there are some things you've got to fight for yeah. and, and that pacifism is good and that wanting peace is good but sometimes there are some things worth fighting for and, and here I think they're kind of trying to do that, but they're just sort of doing it by making the Dolcians so wet and yeah. so boring. Mm-hmm. And and just, you know, when that guy basically is confronting an alien dominator by telling him to, you know, be polite to the director, you know, to the point that he's willing to get killed because that guy wasn't polite to the... Like, yeah. come on. Like, it's one thing to be a race of pacifists. That's an interesting idea. And that idea of what happens if your world has reached a, a, a state of enlightenment where we have disarmed and he's suddenly threatened by an alien race that is not disarmed. That's an interesting sci-fi idea. Hmm. But but they don't do that. They just make the Dolcians pathetic and wet and feeble. 
So I actually don't mind that much when the Dominators kill them. <laughs> Lovely. So look, it, it's not a strong story, but I did take more out of it than I thought, and I enjoyed it a bit more than I thought. Rob, what about you? Yeah, look, and I'll just say we'll, we'll see another race not dissimilar to the Dalcians later on in the Crotons, but we're not talking about that. Uh, we're still on the Dominators. Uh, I think, yes, this does get a lot of stick for being just a bit dull. The Dominators are a bit meh. The Quarks, they're really crappy looking and they don't work well. You know, they were never a threat to the Daleks. Come on. And I'm sorry, I, th- I think they look good until they move. Until they move and sort of wave their arms. Can we call them arms? Yes, yes. I think <laughs> so, I think that's the problem, yes. Yeah. And look, and, and I think the way it really sticks at the pacifists doesn't sit well with many viewers either, especially in the modern era uh, of, of who... But even back then, I think it's probably a more abnormal sort of point of view for Doctor Who to be taking. Although it is in the Daleks, as you mentioned, with, with Ian, but it's not a very common theme to sort of, you know, stick it to pacifists. So There is a difference between give peace a chance... And just pathetic, unengaged pacifism. That is true. So look, I can see all of that, and and I don't disagree with any of it. It's all there <laughs> on the screen. It's happening. Yeah. But I do find this kind of watchable and even interesting in some areas. Now, yes. th- there's a qualifier there. It's maybe watchable once every five to ten years. <laughs> yes, that's fair. <laughs> but it's still watchable. Uh, you know, if I was giving a... I've, I've given marks out of ten in my notes. If I was giving a mark out of ten, it's a five out of ten. It's not great. But it's also, if five years have gone by, I might watch it and go, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll say four or five out of ten is about right, yeah. Yeah, as the start of a new season, though, when we like to think, oh, you know, the new season starts with something amazing, it's not that. <laughs> no, what is amazing and what have been a really interesting start of the season, though, is the Mind Robber. Rob, do you want to take the lead? Yeah, now this is interesting. It's another five-part story. The Dominators was five parts as well. It was originally going to be four parts, but it actually gained an episode from the Dominators. I think they realised they couldn't squeeze more more out of it, so they, they gave another episode to this, which is why we have this really crazy opening episode, you know, with, with just the main cast in this in this void. It's, it's really weird. It's actually quite different to the rest of the story. Uh, that's the reason that's there, because they gained this episode and had to, had to do something. In our stories for Doctor Who Virgins episode that we did last month, this was actually my gateway story into the Troughton era. Yeah. So I actually quite rate this, not because it's his best, but I think it's that kind of bonkers 60s black and white Who that in my head is Troughton Doctor Who, even if it's actually not. This is quite bizarre because, you know, Troughton Doctor Who is more base under siege and it's Cyberman and it's all this. This is this is like pure fantasy and it, it, it's actually quite unique in many ways. So I recognise this as a quirk of mine that I see it as very Troughton Doctor Who, even though it's not. But it really, really works for me. Terence Dix hated it. Famously, he said it was far too fantasy for him. I think it's great. It's an 8 out of 10 for me. Yeah, I think it's one of those stories that Doctor Who should not do often, but it should do. And and it works very well as a once every now and then thing. Part one is absolutely fantastic. I think anybody who doesn't enjoy part one, I, I, I'm baffled by. Um, you know, <laughs> someone's someone's going to write in and tell me why they don't. That's fine. It's a story I've also come to appreciate more as I've got older. Uh, as a as a kid, and I was six when this was broadcast on the ABC, as a repeat, I emphasise, not for the first time. Um, 
<laughs> I can remember watching this, and the the first episode really caught my imagination. Um, something about the TARDIS being covered in lava is really cool and really exciting, and that would have been a really good opening to the season. Like I didn't know that that had happened at the end of the Dominators. I just thought that we're opening this story, and the TARDIS has accidentally landed in a volcano. Like mm. I'm going with that. Love the first part. As a kid, though, there was kind of a lot of dull bits in between exciting bits. So there was lots of, hey, that's cool, there's a unicorn, and now we're going to wander around a bit more. Oh, and now there's a minotaur, and now we're going to wander around a lot more. And now there's Medusa, and we're going to wander. Whereas now I get the references, I get who Gulliver is, I got you know who the master was and what was going on, and, and, and I know the references, and I really appreciate it now. In a way, I didn't as a kid, but even as a kid, the, the fantasy and the just bonkersness of it... Mm. Was, was really cool. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of The Mind Robber. I could watch The Mind Robber regularly. What would you give it out of 10? Eight and a half. Yeah, it's pretty high. It is, it is. Uh, do you want to give us your thoughts on The Invasion as well? The Invasion? Well, this, this we've had two five-parters. Now we go to an eight-parter, which is, which is just crazy, you know. And what can you say about this? I mean, it's the brother from another mother of The Web of Fear, it's, it's an epic length, it's eight episodes, but it doesn't feel padded. It's got Cybermen, even if they're not in half of it, that doesn't matter. Unit, location filming, action scenes, a good plot. I know I'm not being profound when I say this is the template for early 70s <laughs> Doctor Who. Yeah. I mean, if this was in colour, it would be even more amazing. I actually try and imagine it in colour when I watch it. It's, it's basically a no-brainer when... You know, someone says, oh, what's a good story from this season? Um, you know, just give them the invasion. <laughs> it's it's like a 9 out of 10 effort for me. I do love Cybermen, but it is a great story. It is probably my favourite of the season. Yeah. And I've got nothing profound to say about it either. It, it, it is just a really good story. Monster, cast, action, all the rest of it. The one point I wanted to make is, again, just casting myself back to discovering the Troughton era... And this is a story that I discovered on audio when I was seven, eight years old. I borrowed the audio cassettes from the, the Doctor Who Club. Mm. And listening to it, it just felt like such an epic. Because they went to Russia, and they went to other parts of London, and they had missiles flying everywhere, and a cyber fleet, and Megatron bombs, and hordes of Cybermen. And it just felt so epic to my my young fan mind and when i watch it now it holds up you know the the model work isn't amazing and yeah okay the, the hordes of missiles are dots on a screen but you still get that sense of you know this is a big worldwide event it's mm. not just the home counties or you know a small corner of london being attacked and yeah i'm not going to equivocate it is my favorite of this season i i love it i absolutely love it and i don't know anybody who hates it i've never heard someone Tell me why they hate the the invasion. No, no, I've never heard that either. But mm, <laughs> the but. Is next. Yes. So, so famously, this is the one where they got to the point of being about to film Prison in Space, realizing that it was both terribly problematic, terribly dated, <laughs> like like too problematic for the sixties. Yeah, um, and and just impossible to film. And the director's just gone, you cannot put this on television. I will not film it. Yes. And they're like, well, we've got nothing else. And Terrence Dick's going, actually, um, I know this guy, Robert Holmes, and we've been working on a bit of a just-in-case script. Um, it's ready to go. What do you think? Mm-hmm. So, so they've done it. And it was worse than I expected. I, I, I kind of thought this was an okay story, and I watched it and didn't get a lot out of it. Its big problem is the production just doesn't match the script. 
Yeah. Robert Holmes is clearly going for a few things in terms of the design of the Dynatrope, the design of the Crotons, the way the Dynatrope is situated in the Gond village. Um, he's going for things with certain characters. Like, like Celerus is a really self-serving political bastard. You know, he, he <laughs> changes his attitude on the Crotons and on the Doctor yeah. purely on popular opinion. You know, when it's cool, when, you know, when the Crotons are our heroes, he's like, no, I support the Crotons. And then it's like, hey, the Crotons have been killing our people. Well, I'm not in favour of the Crotons. I never have been. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big friend of the Doctors. Oh, no, the Crotons, no, no, popular opinion's against them. I'm against them. And like he's, he, and then Elik is like the, the opposite of that in that he's like a really canny, overt politician. Mm. So there's some really interesting character dynamics I'm sure Robert Holmes is going for there. Yeah, comment, comment Comments on learning and the way that society's structured. Like, I can see what Robert Holmes' script is wanting to do. But the production team does not deliver it at all. The sets are shoddy. The location filming is dull. The, 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 the model work doesn't match the sets. And the dialogue doesn't match either of them. There, mm. there, there are scenes where they're going, see, look over there, what's happening? And you look at a model and something completely different that could not be their point of view is happening. It, 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 it is a mess. Um, you know, there's, there's long scenes of snake things beeping noisily at stuff. There's long mm-hmm. scenes of Jamie crawling through some tubes, um, you know, people just wandering around quarries. It's it's dull. I like the Cronon design. That's probably the only thing I like about it. I I can see Holmes' intent, but this is dull and went down in my estimation, I'm very sorry to say. Okay. Now, when you were talking about the characters, you were getting quite excited and, you know, animated there and saying there's some, there's some good characterization there. And look, I think there's some genuine mystery here as to you know who the crotons are and what they're up to it seems so very strange that people pass into this room and they come out the other side into a wasteland only to be vaporized it gets you thinking you know what on earth is this all about and i guess the payoff is there it's it's explained by the end of the story especially in the final episode but it still doesn't quite land for me so it's not a great story. And it's, it's quite interesting that Robert Holmes basically takes this story and does it all again in The Mysterious Planet. Yes. Uh, you know, 17 years later with, you know, the, uh, a, a sort of a semi-primitive society who do have a little bit of technology, but not complete technology, taking the best and brightest to go and work with a big silver robot you know underground it's, it's mm. almost the same story terence dix thought this was the worst monster in the history of doctor who i've seen him say that before the crotons the way they talk i thought they were brummies but apparently most people hear south african accents the the voice artists were certainly going for south african because they thought that it was a treatise on apartheid i'm not sure not sure where in the story they they got that this was a a comment on apartheid but they didn't so they thought we'll do south african accents um which again as a a six-year-old you just think it's a funny alien voice you don't get that it's an accent you know that's kind of cool um terence is right like the crotons can't hold their guns and they can't see outside in the light and and all the rest of it but the thing that you can see here in robert holmes's early writing is he hasn't worked out how to do natural exposition. No. So there's a lot of the Doctor just standing there and explaining the plot to Zoe, or Zoe giving us a bit of a you know chat about our friend, the Tellurium element. Yeah, it's not the full Holmes. I can see what he's doing. It doesn't work. No, no, that's right. Uh, to mention episode length, though, this is only a four-parter. We've had two five-parters and an eight-parter. So it does actually go by pretty quick if you want to watch it at least once which is fortunate but you're right it is the only four part of the season which is just Mm. a reflection of 
you know, how little money they had, how little time they had, and they just had to make stories as long as possible because they couldn't afford to make too many stories. Yeah, you know what I don't like about it? The way they're in all these stone huts, but their clothing is absolutely modern and immaculate. And I think, how did you make that? (laughs) Yeah, Mm. this is what I'm saying. There's, There's all these production things that just don't collectively work with each other at all and, and clearly a reflection of the fact that this was such a late replacement you know the director was ready to start building the sets and, and, and blocking prison in space and suddenly it's like okay we need a learning hall just give us some you know give us some computers and um, when he needs to wander through the back oh, look we'll put up some black drapes and some vacuum cleaner pipes that'll do <laughs> you know um, just put a, put a door in a quarry that's fine you know that's all we can do um, give us some polyester you know it's 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 rushed it is what it is yeah it is shall we move on uh, yeah, let's. Why don't you give us a start on the Seeds of Death? Seeds of Death. I didn't make a lot of notes on because this is the first Trouton I ever saw. So there's wow. obviously nostalgia there for me. Yeah, I saw this on VHS as as my first Trouton. So there's nostalgia, which is genuinely hard for me to shake. And I think the Ice Warriors here and the story itself is better than the Ice Warriors where they previously appeared. And I do like the story, but at the same time. I don't think it's a particularly great story. It's, it's a 6 out of 10, 7 out of 10 at best for me. Notably for this season, it sort of goes back to a season 5 base under siege kind of vibe, which otherwise isn't really apparent in this season. I get that they're reusing the Ice Warriors here. I mean, we're talking about how fraught this whole season is. They're reusing Ice Warrior costumes basically to save money. I don't really have a lot to say on the story itself, except it's okay. Well, I've got a couple of points to add. Uh, certainly, I share with you some of that nostalgia. It was the third story that I saw of the Trout era because of that VHS release. I, I do remember as a kid, six episodes all um, linked together without opening and closing credits and cliffhangers was was a long watch when you were seven or eight. Um, mm-hmm. I do remember that. But I actually really, really like this story, and I liked it even more watching it back over the last couple of weeks. I think it is your classic 60s story. I will make the point that could it have been shorter? Absolutely. If this was a modern story, you'd cut all the stuff with the rockets out, you'd just have everybody on the moon base, the TARDIS arrives on the moon base, and you'd start the story about where episode three starts. But that's not the point. The point is you have a cool adventure in a rocket, you have cool stuff going on. The direction is really, really interesting. That, that opening scene where it's just lots of people talking to each other in the control room, the camera's just gently shifting around and moving and moving in and out, and it's really good. You get lots of great POV shots at the start. You get great shots on the location of the Ice Warriors lumbering through the countryside. I, I think it's really well directed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and the Ice Warriors here are really, really good. I think it's their best story. And the scene that really highlighted them for me is that bit where Osgood has been confronted by the Ice Warriors, by Sla, um, and hello to Lord Sla from Twitter if you're listening. Um, <laughs> has some interesting takes that chat, but mostly good. Um, yeah. But that bit where Sla is saying to Osgood, right, you know, you're going to get T-Mac going for us. And Osgood goes and plays with the controls and the smoke comes up and he, he turns around with this kind of nervous grin like, oh, the machine's broken. Sorry about that. And, and kind of like doing the brave thing, but you can kind of see that the character's thinking, well, what are they going to do? You know, they're not going to kill me. Mm. And then Slars just says, you've deliberately damaged the apparatus. Kill him. And the look Osgod gives of like, he can kill me. Dead. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, then the reactions of the different technicians and, you know, some are like, well, we're basically goners now anyway, so let's go out saving Earth. And Fusion's like, no, I want to live. <laughs> and, and you know, there's a party that goes, I want to be the other guys, but... 
I might be future if I was confronted by ice warriors you know Mm. I value my life and it goes from there look it slows down a little bit in the middle particularly the episode where Troughton's on holiday uh, but then gears up again I think there's great concepts here but it is also just a fantastic look at what in 1969 they thought the future was going to look like and I love the big concept of team out. I love the idea of it just making everything too easy. I love the idea of it shutting down exploration. And let's face it, since we went to the moon a couple of times, we actually haven't done that much. Maybe life no. has become too easy. And you know, there's talk now that we're going to go to Mars, and that 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 excites me. And you know, we put the Voyager probes out there, but we've slowed down on this. And maybe it's not team out. Maybe it's the internet. Maybe it's international travel. I don't know what it is, but. There is something um, prophetic about the seeds of death. Even something as simple as weather control and, 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 and the water destroying the seeds. There's so much in this I really like. But the final point I make is that Jamie and Zoe get a lot to do in this. And this, I think, is very reflective of the whole season. Jamie and Zoe get agency, as, as we would say in modern parlance. Um, it's Jamie and Zoe that go off to the weather control centre. It's Jamie that goes up to fight the ice warriors when the doctor doesn't come back. It's Zoe who has the idea about adapting the solar cells. They contribute, but it's always the doctor that gets to be the hero. Yes. And I think that's a real dynamic of this crew, that the others get to suggest and they get to help and they get to support and they're, they're important parts. Jamie and Zoe are valuable to the plot, but the hero moment, actually defeating the monster, actually making the decision, actually doing the clever thing, is always the doctor. Yeah, that's it. Um, so look, this this would be a contender for my second favourite of the season, so I liked it more than you did, I think, Rob. Yeah, that's a pretty strong recommendation, Dave. Yeah, uh, if you haven't checked this one out for a while, this would probably be the one on the list that I'd say is worth a new look. Uh, another one that I think it might be worth a new look, and maybe I'm going to also enjoy more than you, Rob, I don't know, we haven't discussed it, mm, we'll but is The Space Pirates. Yes. I'm a big defender of The Space Pirates, and okay. I'm going to make three quick points in its defense and then I'll see if you agree or you have points to counter that. Okay. Uh, The first is that I think that it is strongly let down by the fact the only existing episode is the dull one. Episode one, you've got an attack on a space station, big pirate attack, lots of blasters, lots of fire. The the, the space military come in, there's another attack on another one, the space military come in, they they set a trap, there's a firefight, base explodes, lots of action, lots of things going on, the TARDIS crew in the middle of it. It, It's quite an exciting opening episode. Episode two is the one where you kind of then deliberately slow the plot down and go, right, who are these pirates? Who are these space military people? What is the universe the Doctor's in? They introduce Milo Clancy. It's a real sort of like, okay, let's pause and explain the story. And it's definitely hurt by the fact that space pirates aren't in part two. No. But once you get to part three, again, things ramp up. You've got stuff going on on multiple planets. I love the model work of the V-ship, by the way, and all the other stuff. The model work's fantastic. So, So I think the story has got a lot more to offer than part two suggests. I think there's a lot of good Robert Holmes stuff here, and particularly a really classic Robert Holmes villain. And, and again, I think it's a shame that Cavan is not in part two, because he's a really good Holmesian villain. He's nasty, he's competent, he's got an offsider. There's a lovely scene where they ask um, Dervish, like, why do you hang out with this guy? You're clearly a good guy. It's like, you know, I made a mistake, little mistake, just once. But Kevin found out, and that was enough, and now he's sort of got control over me. Mm. And, and, yeah, that's really good. The dynamic between Madeline Isagri and her father, I, I think, is really quite effective. Look, it, it is a slower-paced story. I get that. It is very of its time when, you know, a rocket would launch to go to the moon, and you'd spend the next three days waiting for it to arrive. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, it feels like that sort of sense of space is big, really big. You just couldn't imagine that. You know, it, it, it's got that sense they're going for that. It takes time to get places, which adds world building, but it doesn't add excitement. I, I get that. So I get its faults, but I think it is underrated. That's my case for the defence. Where do you sit, Rob? Yeah, look, I think this is the story that's always, always been hardest for me. And I dare say most fans to get into you know, A, because it's mostly missing, yeah, and, and B, because some missing stories you can get into still from the audio track that remains, but this one, I don't think so. Um, so I actually read the Target novel. Yes. This time around. I, I read it in one sitting. Didn't take that long. It's only about 130 pages. But it is one of those later Terrences from the later part of the run, isn't it? Yes. Yes, yes it is. And look, I've got to say, without people doing, you know, semi-comedy voices like Milo Clancy's or having to look at, you know, Madeline Sigri's silly helmet, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. sto- the story's reasonably okay. And in the novel, it feels like a pacey four-parter. It really does. You, you can almost, you almost feel where the episodes are and you think, oh, this is a four-parter, but it's not. It's actually a six-parter. So I think the actual six parts of the actual TV story are just too much to sustain what is a fairly simple plot. And, you know, we've said on the show before, and you've said again here tonight, that what we do have is is probably the weakest episode mm. of them all, which doesn't help. Oh, and I've also made a note. Terence Dix says that this is one of Bob Holmes' few failures. It's a boring space opera. Um, so <laughs> I will say that on screen, what I've seen of it and what I've heard of it, I'd say for me it's like a 5 out of 10. But in the novel, I would say about a 7 out of 10. Yeah, look, that's very fair. We are mm. at a point in the season now where the production team is clearly struggling. Um, Peter Bryant is basically one foot out the door. Derek Sherwin is desperately trying to be the script editor and the producer, in effect, and Terence Dix yeah. is sort of stepping in to fill in that. You know, you look at The Seeds of Death, and my understanding is part one of The Seeds of Death is, you know, basically Brian Hale's script edited by Terence Dix, mm. and then that transitions to by the time you get to about part four, part five, it's basically Terence Dix writing a script based on an idea that Brian Hales had back in the distant past. Yeah. So he's basically rewriting that. The fact that Robert Holmes clearly had not been commissioned to write another story until the Crotons went into production, and Terence Dix is like, well, hey, look, you know, you can turn something around. Can you give me another story? Um, sorry, dude, we're running out of spots. Um, can you fill six episodes for us? <laughs> you know, that, that that's clearly where the production is. It is rushed. Again, I can see the nascent Holmes styling with the characters and ideas there, but it is clearly rushed. Terrence Six is about to go and write 10 parts at the other end of this. So, you know, mm. they've, they've thrown together the Crotons. He's had to rewrite The Seeds of Death. He's about to write a 10-parter with Malcolm Hulk. And in the middle of this, they've thrown this together. I get why it doesn't work. Like, I'm not blind to its faults. But I think it is better than people dismiss it to be based on part two. It's the Dodo Chaplet of season six. I wouldn't say that about Dodo. <laughs> Look, it is the weakest story. Well, is it the weakest story of the season? Is it better than Dominators? Mm. It, it is one of the two weeks of the season, unquestionably. Like there, there are two, three. I don't know. It's hard to rank those bottom three against each other. It depends on my mood. Look, yeah. it's not the best story of the season. It's not in the top half. Shall we move on? Yeah. Look, I've had a lot to say, Rob, uh, um, mm. but um, I didn't get to watch the War Games, but you did. I did. I did. I watched all ten episodes, and well it was done. very, very easy. 
if he's I, I, I find this a very easy story to watch, uh, which it, might yeah. tip you off as to how I feel about it. So, yeah, this is one of the stories I specifically rewatched for this uh, recording, and I've got to say, I can watch these ten episodes better than I can watch many six-parters from different eras in the show's history. Because something interesting is always happening. It's it's the old Keys of Marinus thing where they, they move around. Something's always happening. That's interesting. Or it's uh, The Chase uh, where they move around and something's always interesting is happening. You know, it's, it's exactly the same thing. You know, moving from zone to zone and, you know, and then into the base itself and... And obviously then to, to Gallifrey at the end. We move all over the place here. It's it's absolutely fantastic. I think a lot's been said about the war games, though, so I did want to go off on a different tangent. I'm not sure how uh, keen you'll be to do this. We don't have to discuss it at length. But the reveal of the Time Lords at the end, I think, feels quite right. Because up until this point in the show, we have nothing else to work with. Here is new information about the Doctor. Which is kind of what me when people say that this reveal is no different to the Timeless Children reveal, when actually it's it's really massively different. Here, we're working with a blank slate, we're given new information, we move on, we knew no better. In the Timeless Children, Chibnall comes along with an eraser telling us, oh, everything you know is wrong, and, and that's really jarring. It's actually the complete opposite to filling in a blank space. You know, the only way I think these two episodes would even be faintly similar is if Hartnell and Troughton had been banging on for the, the previous six seasons about how they come from, I don't know, the planet Jupiter and, you know, told us 101 facts about living on the planet Jupiter and then suddenly he's a Time Lord from Gallifrey and everything's completely different. So it, it got me thinking, actually, when I was watching this and we get to the final episode and the Time Lords come in, just how some people compare this to what's recently happened in Doctor Who and how it's, oh, it's exactly the same thing. And I don't see it that way at all. It's completely different. Dave, have I gone down a rabbit hole? You, you have, but I'll follow you. Okay. Um, not, not, not too far, but I will. Look, look. I agree with you that this is a additional piece of canon, not a changing of a piece of canon, and, yes. and that is important. It, it is also important that the Timeless Child Revelation changes the fundamental aspect of the Doctor and, and takes the Doctor's character from just somebody who dropped out of Time Lord Society to go and have adventures to a chosen one messiah type mm. character, which which is a fundamental shift in the character. In this one, the Doctor's character is reinforced by his visit to the planet of the Time Lords. The Doctor's rebelliousness, his outsider nature, his, his desire to not be bored, just to go off and explore the universe, which is why we watch Doctor Who. We watch Doctor Who because we want to explore the universe, explore time and space. Fundamentally, that's what we tune in to do. And yeah. so the Doctor being contrasted with very boring, stiff, establishment-type people who have no desire to explore the universe. They just want to judge the universe. Mm. They just want to observe the universe. That that reinforces the character of the Doctor. It doesn't change the character of the Doctor. Um, and it's also done in just such a way that is very dramatic, very powerful. The, the, the scene where they dematerialise the War Lord is a very affecting scene. The mm. scene where the Doctor says goodbye to Jamie and Zoe, you know, I won't forget you, they will forget me, won't they? Like, that's a really yeah. powerful moment. So it, it is it is a different thing done better. That's the classic Who equivalent of, uh, I guess, Donna having her memory erased. 
It is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, I just made one other quick note that just like Holmes reused uh, the Crotons for the Mysterious Planet years later, I reckon there's a good whiff of five Doctors about this, you know, with people being kidnapped and sent to different time, uh, not time zones, but different zones to, you know, square off against one another. I reckon, I reckon Terence reused bits of this for five Doctors, even though it might not be readily apparent. Yeah, look, I, I agree with everything that you've said, Rob. The, the one note that I really had is to support you that it is incredibly watchable and it's watchable because Terence Dixon, Malcolm Hulk, when told you've got to write a story and it's got to be 10 episodes and we start filming the first one tomorrow. You know, these guys were scripting it as the, the first episodes were being filmed. You know, you know, they're filming part one and they're writing part four sort of thing. You know, that that's that's really how tight this was and how desperate this production of this season was. It's just falling apart around them. And yet they've given this story that every episode adds a little bit more mystery. You you think you're in World War One, and then suddenly General Smythe's got some sort of video conference machine mm. behind his painting. And then you're not sure what's going on, but suddenly there's a red coat in World War One. Then suddenly there's a thing that makes noise like a TARDIS. And then suddenly the Romans are there. And then suddenly you're on an alien base. And then suddenly you meet the war chief. And he's a mate of the doctors. And now the warlord's involved. And now the etc etc now we're putting the resistance together and now it's you know the doctor's betrayed and now there's a civil war between the war chief and the security chief and the warlord and it's all blowing up and now it's so big the time lords have to come in and intervene it builds so effectively every episode adds something to it and and that's the way to do it and i i will end on this note of saying look i i think the Invasion is my personal favourite of this story, but this and the Seeds of Death, look, look, I probably have to put the War Games above Seeds of Death, but I love them both. But I'll end on this note, I have told this story before, so I won't tell all of it, but when I saw Terence Dix in Melbourne and he was asked, what's your favourite story? He said, look, I won't tell you my favourite story, but I'll tell you the three I'm most proud of being involved with. And the first one he mentioned was the War Games. Mm-hmm. And he was just so genuinely proud that something that was just you've got to write us a 10-part story, it's got to write out the, the cast, it's got to finish Patrick Trouton's Doctor, and you've got no time to do it in. The fact that that, written out of desperation, is now so well regarded by fans was something that Terence Dix was, I think, rightfully very, very proud of. But doesn't that happen often in art? You know, Absolutely. Songs that are written quickly or, or novels that are dashed off to fulfil a contract or whatever can sometimes just blow up and be amazing things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it is just that desperate creativeness. And, you know, we forget that at this stage, Terence Dix and Derek Sherwin and, and others involved were young men in a hurry. You know, we, we sort of think of them as these elder statesmen of who they get interviewed in their retirement by, you know, DVD makers. But, but they were young men wanting to forge a career in television and really say, hey, look at what I can do. I can, I can make this. I can make a really good show. Oh yeah, young Terence with his beetle haircut and his Sergeant Pepper's moustache, and you know yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a very young man back then. Yeah, and and I think that's a really good segue, Rob, into just wrapping up what we think about this season. And it it is just so sixties. Mm. It is so creative, but it is so watchable. And I, I was really amazed, with the possible exception of the Crotons, and even then it wasn't terrible how easily I was able to watch this season. And that's the big takeaway I had. I, When I nominated season six, I thought, look, I want to have a trap in there. I think there's a lot I could say about this. 
no one's going to vote for the trout and over Pertwee or whatever. So, you know, or, or Tom Baker. Or Tom Baker, yeah. I thought, no one's going to vote for it. But, you know, I'll put it in there because I have stuff to say. Um, and, and, and it got voted for. And, like, you have just thought, that's a lot of Doctor Who to watch in two weeks. Yeah. But it was, it? it was so easy to do. I did not stumble at any point. I watched this season very, very contentedly. It's not perfect all the way through, but there are... At least two, probably three, arguably four really classic stories in there and others that are just fun to watch. And even the ones that are a little bit tougher are at least trying to be inventive. And that, for me, is a big, big deal. Look, for mine, uh, seven stories, only two of them really underwhelm me. And those that do underwhelm me, I think, are still redeemable in some way, shape or form, either through reading the novel or thinking about what they're trying to convey, but maybe not quite succeeding in or perhaps imagining them with different actors or different effects uh, and so on. They aren't terrible stories in themselves. So I think season six is actually quite strong. Completely agree with you there. You've got Pat's best TARDIS crew. A bunch of good stories. It's different to the bases under siege of the previous season. And if anything, similar to Pat's first season with some sci-fi spacey stuff and some Earth-based stuff and some old villains and some new stuff, you know, it's, it's quite a good mix. And although behind the scenes was chaotic at times, to put it mildly, yes, and we've discussed all that, I think season six absolutely works on the whole. And if listeners out there haven't watched it, grab some of these stories, particularly the ones we've really raved about, and get stuck in. It's good stuff. Absolutely agree. Absolutely second that. Alrighty. That was season six. Done and dusted. Which brings us to our emails. We've had, I think, four this month. Robin, the first one is yours. Yeah, we've got a bunch here, so let's rattle through. This uh, first one is from our mate in the US, John H., he says, hello again, sirs. Hope all is well with you and yours. The way he says sirs, Crichton says sirs on uh, <laughs> Red Dwarf, doesn't he? Hello, sirs. Uh, when I emailed you last month, I was mere minutes away from watching An Unearthly Child for the first time and thus beginning my journey through the classic series from start to finish. I thought I'd provide you with a quick update and a couple of thoughts. I have made my way through season one and put a good dent into season two. I'm about to watch episode two of The Chase. I've been able to keep a pretty steady pace of one or two episodes most nights. That's pretty impressive pace, I've got to say. It's very good. Uh, He says, An Unearthly Child was outstanding, episode one especially, but I enjoyed all four parts. And I think, Dave, just to break in here, that's, that's probably most people's opinions. The first episode is great. People aren't so fussed on the next three, but he seems to like them. Look, I'm a big fan of all four, but I think everybody agrees that episode one is very, very special, yes. Yeah. The Keys of Marinus is my personal favourite from the first season. I was blown away by it. Yay! Because I like Keys of Marinus too. I do too. Uh, (laughs) Susan, sigh. I just really kind of hate her. Sorry, I listened to your fun with William Hartnell episode and one of you, and I think this was me, Dave, referred to Vicky as Susan done right and I couldn't agree more. Not that Susan was always awful, she was perfectly adequate in the Aztecs, it was just the constant screaming and the, oh, grandfather, and playfully climbing a tree after the Daleks ambushed and killed that guy and, well, pretty much everything she did and said after that. (laughs) So, not a fan of Susan. The Aztecs, phenomenal. This was when the Hartnell Doctor really came alive for me. Yes, excellent story. Good call. Yeah. The Romans was absolutely delightful. I was not expecting the silliness to be turned up to 11, but I love the silliness turned up to 11. It's silliness that's done in a witty way, like the City of Death, and that's why I love it so much. 
Yeah. The Edge of Destruction felt like the longest 44 minutes of my life. (laughs) (laughs) And the web planet, yikes. Overall, the first season exceeded expectations and season two to this point has been even better. Take care, fellas. Can't wait for the next episode. John H. Thank you for those thoughts, John. Look, I'm a fan of all the stories you mentioned there. There's only one Hartnell that doesn't work for me, and you haven't mentioned it. Um, and in fact, I did make a point of trying to rewatch it a couple of months ago, and I got halfway and haven't got to part three yet. I must do that. Uh, I'll talk about that next month. I promise I will. Okay. But no, really, really good to see somebody enjoying the Hartnell era. Mm, absolutely. The next email is from Shane Gordon. Thank you for writing in, Shane. He says... Just listened to your episode for Doctor Who Virgins and would like to discuss the email from John H. I am so happy for him to start the journey. As one who only watches my Doctor Who collection this way at least once a decade, I love this. It's a gigantic task and you can get bogged down at times as life morphs around you, but it's so worth it. I hope John gets through it all and enjoys it. If you read this out, I'll just like to say, G'day John, welcome to the family brother. How nice. And I thought it would be fun to put it after John H.'s latest uh, email to us. No, that's very cool. It, it, it makes the podcast feel like such a community when people are not just talking to us, but talking to each other. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, moving on, another regular correspondent of ours, JT, says, Hello, lads. Thanks for doing justice to the Doctor Who Virgin idea, although when I first saw your title, I was thinking it was Virgin Books. My quick list below of stories I have tried out on people who have never seen the show. To note, most of my examples, I only had a limited range of shows at my disposal, as by the time I had a lot of the DVD collection, people knew I was a fan and avoid the topic. In order of my showing, in the mid-80s in New Zealand, uh, JT showed someone The Chase, a bootleg copy, but his mate thought Vicky was great and the story was always entertaining. Uh, Late 80s in Australia, he showed someone The Mind Robber, a fail. Uh, The three guys I showed, I talked it up way too much and they didn't make it past the first eps. In hindsight, I should have shown uh, eps two first as ep one is not typical. (laughs) We're just talking about that tonight, actually. (laughs) But we love episode one, Dave. We do, we do, but um, we're Doctor Who fans, I guess. Yeah, true. Uh, Also in the late 80s in Australia, he showed someone Time Flight. I said I only had a few stories. Uh, Madness! (laughs) Success. Uh, Three blokes who thought it was good gobbledygook. (laughs) Oh, look, I I guess you could kind of enjoy Time Flight and an ironic thing, but, you know, where the dramatic conclusion is people handing aeroplane spare parts to each other? No, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, in the late 80s in New York, oh, this is quite a location, he showed uh, Remembrance of the Daleks and the Happiness Patrol. Success! Two Americans who thought they were great. They loved the Candyman and thought the special weapons Dalek kicked ass. P.S. They were also lovers of the Three Stooges. Two very good, good calls there. Very good calls. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, early 90s, back in Australia, uh, Robots of Death. Success, the comment being that was quite good. Mid-90s, showed Pyramids of Mars with uh, also success. Late 2000s, once the new series had started, showed uh, An Unearthly Child to Moderate Interest. Uh, Mid-2010s, The Time Meddler, success, a good one. Uh, The new companion, uh, Historic with Modern Twist, uh, were the winners there. And and then last year, in lockdown, a family wanted to borrow a few stories, so I gave them uh, the theme of the Brigadier, leading them to The Web of Fear, Inferno, Terror of the Zygons, Mordron Undead, and Battlefield. Which one did they love the most? Battlefield. That's fair. <laughs> and, Battlefield's and with a sad a very, face. Battlefield's a very fun, exciting action story. I like Battlefield. 
Although it's, it's not Inferno. As, it's not Inferno, and it's not Zygons, and it's not Weaver Fear. I, I get it, but I don't mind someone liking Battlefield. Yeah. Uh, and three weeks ago, he showed someone the enemy of the world with success. Cheers, and keep up the good work from JT. Well, thank you very much for that follow-up, and we agreed on some, and um, yeah, look, we thought the Mind Robin might be a success, but it wasn't, so there you go. Alrighty. Another from correspondent Dave Young. Hi guys, just a shout-out following your conventions episode for a convention over here in the UK. The Bedford WhoCon is one of those where they seem to have got a great balance between getting great and varied guests, but also has a real family feel. Over the last three years, I have chatted to Colin, Sylvester, Sophie, and John Leeson and Michael Jaston, amongst others. They also have at each convention a series of songs and sketches, which the guests quite happily take part in and are available to see on their website. Looking forward to October, where, as well as Sarah Sutton, I will get a chance to meet Davo. Yeah! Best wishes, Dave Young. Sarah Sutton is one of the companions who's still alive I have not met, and I really wanted to be brought out to Australia by someone, please. Just going back to the start of this uh, episode where I mentioned I'm watching this Panopticon 7 footage, Sarah Sutton is sitting next to Matthew Waterhouse, who is chain-smoking in sections of it <laughs> and sort of blowing smoke all over her. And she's like, oh, my God, you know, will I get away from this stage without catching cancer? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a panel like you would not see in a modern context. No, no. It's, it's it's amazing but thank you dave that's a that's a great letter i have to look up the bedford who con and have a look at some of these uh song and dance routines i think yes uh and finally moving on a uh, friend of the show steve Pinozzo. you utter utter bastards <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah it's a good start um making me choose between my two all-time favorite series of doctor who seasons 11 and 14 i mean how dare you sirs the confounded arrogance and, and in the end, we didn't end up doing either of them, Steve. I'm so sorry. Uh, season 14 may well be the best, greatest, most consistently good season of Doctor Who ever produced. Every story is a certifiable winner, replete with a uh, with bravura acting performances and directorial excellence, so much that informs how we understand Doctor Who today was introduced under the watchful eye of Robert Holmes through this very season. That said, it was Pertwee's final season as the Doctor that drew me in as an impressionable 11-year-old in 1976. From episode one of The Time Warrior, I was hooked. So much to enjoy. Lynx the Sontaran was out of this world scary. Played by the amazing Kevin Lindsay, he has yet to be bettered. No disrespect to the actors that followed him, and the script was so downright funny. My dear Brigadier, straight line may be the shortest distance between two points, but it is by no means the most interesting. Good day, old chap. (laughs) Then there was Agador, the Ice Warriors, Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, Daleks, yes, it is so good. Death to the Daleks was for a long time my favourite Dalek story and my favourite Target book cover. And then there are those back-hugging spiders from Metabilis 3. Can you imagine the greatest missed opportunity ever? Spider-shaped school backpacks. Then there was the Hoomobile, Bessie, Hovercrafts, Speedboats and a Gyrocopter. For a kid who loved vehicles, it was awesome. To me, the cop who gave chase in a, in a Morris 1100 was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I remember feeling that way as a sort of, you know, seven or eight-year-old as well. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Sarah Jane Smith became my first ever TV crush because of that very season, and she stayed that way. Meeting Liz Sladen at Whovention in 1996, my knees somehow turned to jelly and my hands were shaking, which was bizarre. I had met plenty of well-known people, and that had never happened to me in my life. But there you go. Her impact stayed with me, and 20 years later, I was 11 again. I was shocked and desperately upset as my first doctor died on the floor of the unit headquarters lab with Pertwee and Sladen acting their socks off. Say what you will about the excesses of Planet of Spiders, those final scenes more than make up for the entire story's failings. Season 11, it is for me, from Steve. Thank you very much for that, Steve. Some really fun thoughts there. And look, I suspect that both of those seasons will get a nomination again at some point. I think they will. (laughs) So that's our episode for this month, Rob. Just a couple of things to finish up with. I did finish watching WandaVision, and overall, I enjoyed it. I thought that the first episodes were a bit dull. Uh, The middle four, though, were really good. The Halloween was my favourite. The conclusion perhaps wasn't as good as I thought it could have been. It it didn't land it the way that The Mandalorian Season 2 did. But, no, a really fun little show that I've quite enjoyed. And I've now watched Episode 1 of um, Winter Soldier and the Falcon. And um, I hope that, like WandaVision, that gets better. Okay, I saw a lot of love for WandaVision as it went on. I've, I've not watched it. I'm not even signed up to Disney Plus at the moment, so I can't watch it. But maybe I'll get to it one day. Uh, I've been watching Spooks, Dave. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, this is a 10-series show that began in the early 2000s in the UK. It's based around MI5. Uh, the cast turns over every now and then, maybe... <laughs> bit more regularly than every now and then sometimes quite dramatically so by the time you're in season four pretty much the the original cast aside from one or two mainstays are all gone it's a really good show some great storylines a few duff ones uh largely good performances decent budget if you like spy stuff this is a really good show and although it's mi5 and not mi6 there's a ton of international stuff going on crossovers with mi6 personnel and so on it's it's the kind of TV series that's right in my wheelhouse. It's it's just great stuff. I've never seen it. I remember it being on at the time. And I remember it was sort of one of those shows that you'd sort of hear that, you know, somebody's left to go and do spooks or somebody's come to this show from spooks. It became a very, mm. you know, a very zeitgeist show. But no, I've not seen it. So um, maybe I'll have to check out some random episodes sometime. Yeah. Seasons three through to about early season seven have Rupert Penry Jones as one of the leading men in it, who was the lead in uh, the Whitechapel series, uh, who I really liked in that. So it was just fantastic having him for several seasons in Spooks. He was a really good character. Fair enough. Now that I don't have to watch all of season six, not that it was a chore, but um, I can watch something else. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) So that brings us to an end of our episode for March. Our episode for April, the topic will be, well... Back in July of 2018, we did an episode which was Classic Doctors in New Who Stories. And one of our listeners suggested, why don't you reverse that and do New Who Doctors in Classic Stories? Mm. So that will be our topic for next time. We're going to drop a bunch of uh, new doctors into Classic Stories and talk about why we think that'll work. Yeah, so if you haven't heard that episode, go back to July of uh, 2018, have a listen to it, get a feel for how we do this. You might even have some suggestions of your own, get in touch with all the uh, usual uh, socials, and uh, we'll have some fun with it, I think, Dave. 
Absolutely. In the meantime, over the next month, there will be another instalment of Primary Sources. It's a guest coming up on this month's one. It's one of my months off. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rob, you hinted on Twitter that we have another mini podcast thing that is in the works. We've we've got we've got graphics now. We've got our music now. We just need to record one. I did hint at that, and it's it's very much your baby, Dave. So I'm, I'm I won't announce anything else. No, we will. Uh, I think announce that in our next podcast and um hopefully that'll be something new and fun for our listeners yeah i think we'll have a bit of fun with that one too i think so i think so but that, that's a, that's a little teaser trailer for uh, an announcement <laughs> in a month's time but look thank you for staying with us we've had a long conversation about a big season of doctor who but it's one we've really enjoyed thank you for voting for it uh, we hope you enjoyed it and i've been dave and i've been rob and we'll speak again very soon <laughs> sure we'll see ya bye You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>